6. 2 Kings chapter 6, and as we turn there, let me say to you, I am deeply convinced and have been since I first met the Lord that God loves every breathing human being. And frankly, all the ones who have expired, even still. His love never fails, it never ends, not even with death. In fact, it's stronger than death. And it is the will of God for every person to hear the gospel of Christ before death. And I believe that we are well situated here at Beach Haven Baptist Church to declare the love of God all over this metropolitan region and to invite every person to turn to the Lord, to the baptistry, to a life of discipleship, and to membership at Beach Haven Baptist Church. And I, can, I believe we can do it sooner than later. And that's really going to be the intent and the focus of my message and several messages after this. And to reiterate this, I want to invite our chairman of the deacons, Mike Molden, to come and tell you about his experience in Baltimore with Crossover. The week before the meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention, where he and a number of us got on the streets and went door to door to share the gospel. You all give a Beach Haven welcome to Mike Molden. I didn't go to Baltimore because I'd memorized the perfect gospel presentation. I went to Baltimore to be obedient to the calling of the Holy Spirit on my heart. I went because A.B. and I had a divine appointment with Gloria. Dr. Mills reminded us that Baltimore belongs to Jesus Christ. He's not yet returned to rule over the city or the rest of God's creation. So as Christians, we're supposed to be his ambassadors. We're supposed to share the message of salvation through Jesus Christ with everyone we can. You see, A.B. and I had an appointment with Gloria in Baltimore, and she had an appointment with us as well. Gloria is an alcoholic. She lives in downtown Baltimore in a small apartment off a not-so-well-lit hallway. Her apartment door looked more like the back entrance to a business than it did an apartment. She didn't have an apartment number. She didn't have a peephole she could look out and see who was knocking on the door. She didn't have a doorbell. We just about passed by. Uh, but the Holy Spirit led us to walk up those steps and knock on her door. It was about mid-morning, uh, and Gloria opened the door, wiping sleep from her eyes. She said she used to go to church, and that she thought she was saved as a child. A.B. shared his testimony about how he had hit a brick wall at the end of his college football career on the very last game, just like, very much like she had hit a brick wall with her alcoholism. A.B. went on to share how he had turned his life over to Jesus Christ. I shared with her some scripture uh, and told her that it wasn't hard to know for certain that you are saved. And I shared with her Romans 10, 9, that if I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. She was not, we, we talked to Gloria for probably 10 minutes or so. Um, she was not ready at that moment to accept Christ as her Lord and Savior, but she took a gospel track and she said she would read it often in the coming days. 
We told Gloria that we were from Georgia, not like she couldn't tell from our accent though, but uh, we told her we were from Georgia and would probably never see her again. And we offered to pray with her before we left. And she readily accepted. And we prayed, and as we were leaving, we noticed that Gloria was now wiping tears from her cheeks. I know that a seed was planted, or watered, or cultivated. And I pray that Gloria will soon know for certain that Jesus is her Lord and Savior, and that she will spend eternity in heaven with him. See, I stepped out on faith. I stepped out of my comfort zone and uh, to share the love of Jesus Christ with the folks in Baltimore. That's what we all need to do right here in Athens, Georgia. I also was reminded that we have a goal, and that goal is to be more like Christ every day and to win the lost. I want to read just a couple of verses from Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 and 14. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Jesus Christ. See, our goal is to grow in Christ each and every day and take as many people as possible to heaven with us. On Friday night, we got to go to the Baltimore Orioles game. And as we were walking to our seats, several of us saw a uh, message on a shirt uh, at one of the gift shops there and commented that message was exactly what we experienced in Baltimore. And it was what our church family needed to hear uh, about sharing the gospel with the folks around Athens, Georgia. Dave Talbert uh, bought me a shirt as a souvenir, and I'm wearing it today, and I don't mean it to sound like a gimmick or a marketing campaign. It's really just as simple. Just do it. Forget your fears. Forget your awkwardness. Share the love of Jesus Christ with everyone that you come in contact with every day. Thank you all very much. You mean to tell me I'm going to have to go to door to door and I'm going to have to witness to people on the streets in order to share the gospel? Let me say to you, if you are looking for a comfortable witnessing opportunity before you witness, you will never share the gospel. There are no perfect witnessing opportunities. There are no comfortable witnessing opportunities. I will say to you though, hell is even less comfortable. It is. And so I want to say uh, to you, if you find someone who's breathing, let's do all we can to get the gospel to them. And what we will do is in August, we'll have a commitment day. And in August also, we'll train you to share the gospel with anything that moves and breathes. I want this metropolitan region, this area to be the place where it's very difficult not to know Christ as Savior and Lord and fail to hear the gospel from a Beach Haven member. That's what I'm aspiring to, and I am going to give all of my life and everything I've got to lead this church in that direction. They are going to hear of Jesus and His love from us. 
And so, that's why we're at 2 Kings chapter 6. This is a story that I have really been fascinated with for many years. It starts in chapter 6 and it goes on into chapter 7. But a Syrian king, in chapter 6 verse 24, by the name of Ben-Hadad, siege, lay siege to the city of uh, Samaria. And he is there seeking to surround the city to weaken it. No food can get in, no garbage can get out. He's trying to weaken the city to the point where it surrenders and gives up. That takes a while. It is a long campaign, but it's better than having your soldiers slaughtered. His interest is in capturing them and making them slaves. If you go in with a military conquest and wipe them all out, there's not much hope or much chance of that. And so instead of that, you laid siege to a city. No food can get in. They exhaust their food supplies and no garbage can get out. And so the city stacks up with garbage and potential disease and all of the difficulties and pains that go uh, with that. So Ben-Hadad, the uh, general of Syria, ends up laying siege to the city of Samaria. A famine results in verses 25 through 29. That means the food resources decline, the price goes up. In fact, what we find is that they were, they were selling dove dung for about, in Thursday's prices, $4,600 per measurement. A donkey's head, which was unclean and prohibited to eat, was going for, in Thursday's silver prices, $74,000, the best I can estimate. Not only that, but the king interacts with a couple of women and one complains to the king that she and another woman had an agreement to eat one of their sons. And the next day they would eat her son, but she'd hidden him. And she had the audacity and the moral uh, deterioration to complain about it and to admit it to the king. That is how horrible things had declined and that's how extensive the famine was. They were... They were selling nauseating dishes at scandalous prices. Here in chapter 6, the king is helpless. In chapter 6, verse 30, this great authority over Israel, the northern kingdom, is reduced to doing nothing more and extending his control over nothing more than his own robes. And he tears his garments, internal and external. And so he is reduced to that. That is all he controls at this moment because of the siege and because of the famine. And he becomes angry. Chapter 6, verse 31. I don't know how this makes sense, but chapter 6, verse 31, it says, God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. Now, that comes out of nowhere. If you know anything about this particular king, King Joram, you know from 2 Kings chapter 3 that he is wicked. He is the son of Ahab and Jezebel. And he proves it rather quickly. And the guilt he should have projected onto himself is the guilt he projected onto the prophet Elisha. And he sees the man who is his greatest resource become his greatest liability because of his skewed and deteriorated way of thinking in chapter 6, verse 30. 1 through 33. This king is a joke, but he's desperate. He has no one else to blame. Well, Elisha, 
announces some hope in chapter 7, verses 1 through 2, but it is met with some unbelief. But in chapter 7, beginning in verse number 3, we pick up the story, and we find there, beginning in verse number 3, now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and they said to one another, why are we sitting here till we die? If we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. Now therefore come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live. If they kill us, we shall only die, which is what they were going to do anyway. So they took their chances. They went out to the army of the, Samar- uh, the Syrians and surrendered themselves. In verse 5, they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired against us the, king of, the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore, they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. And when these lepers had come to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent and ate and drank and carried from it silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. And then they came back and entered another tent and carried some from there also, and went and hid it. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. And so they went and called the gatekeepers of the city and told them. The lepers shared the good news of the spoil and the victors of God's war against the Syrians almost as quickly as they had it. Friend, this is a day of good news in Jesus Christ, and good news is for sharing. And there are several reasons that arise from the text why we should share this good news. One is, sharing the good news is an urgent thing to do. And there are three uh, items that give us some great urgency in sharing the good news in our day. One is, it's urgent for the world. In chapter 6, verse 25, we find they were eating a donkey's head and dove dung for scandalous prices. When You've got to understand something. Today's crowd must be the genetic inheritors of this crowd in Samaria. When people stop feasting on the Lord, it's not that they stop feasting altogether. They don't give up the pursuit of the soul. They don't give up the pursuit of the spirit. They do not give up pursuit of the mind. Oh, no. They keep pursuing. They have an internal space that is made only for God. And when they turn from God, it's not that they stop seeking at all. It's not that they will not feast on anything. It's not that they give that up at all. Ladies and gentlemen, when the world turns from God and His gospel, it's not that they won't feast on anything, it's that they will swallow anything. It's precisely what they'll do. And that is the condition our world happens to be in 
in many ways. It seems like anything that is true theologically or morally is repudiated, and anything that is wrong is quickly embraced. Have you noticed that? That's oftentimes the way it is in the world. This is the day that Isaiah predicted in Isaiah 5.20. He said, Woe to him who says darkness is light and light is darkness. Who says sweet is sour and sour is sweet. Our world is unable in many ways to tell the difference between the darkness and the light. There are a few obvious things in that way. But our world is in desperate need of some serious but gentle correction on those points. Now, I will, I can just imagine someone saying, I'm glad to hear you say that, Pastor. I've been waiting for a pastor to go after the crack houses and the meth heads. And I would say to you, that's worthy of our attention. We do need to extend the gospel to the lost, the last, the least. We do need to do that. But I must admit to you, after these years of pastoral ministry, I am not only concerned about those who waste away and ruin their lives with uh, crystal meth and in the crack houses, I am worried also about the middle and the upper class as well. And let me tell you why. Whenever you have sunk into the gutter, you know you need help. It's not hard to convince someone who's addicted to something that they need help. They really can't go much beyond the age of 40 in that condition. Most of them wise up sooner than that. They may struggle with an addiction, but with the arrogance and the pride that accompanies it, oftentimes they've abandoned that by the age of 40. My concern, however, is the individual who is satisfied with life and has the sense that he or she needs nothing. I mean, they've got some education accomplishments. They are the kind of folks who have done well financially and they're comfortable. They are the kind of people who really don't sense an internal alarm for the things of God and to walk with Him and to be certain of such things as salvation. In other words, what surrounds them and what fills their life really makes them comfortable in this life. And on top of that, they are applauded by their family. They reflect no godliness, no praise no faith in Jesus Christ, yet they are applauded by their family, they're applauded by their colleagues, they're applauded by their peers. Ladies and gentlemen, I've got to make it very, very clear to you, without a desperate, heart-hungry soul for Jesus Christ, a person will hardly turn to Him. And you've got to know, it is just as easy to die and perish in hell from a leather-bound executive chair in a well-apportioned office as it is from a crack house. We've got to be the kind of people who are as desperate as the crackheads and as the meth addicts for Jesus Christ or there is no hope. In fact, Romans 3.23, we know that. Help me say it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory or the approval of God. But have you ever read verse 22 above it? Salvation is by faith to the Jews and Gentiles, and here's the key term that sets off verse 23. Salvation is by faith to the Jews and Gentiles, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no difference. There's no difference between the woman that impresses the clubs and impresses the neighborhood and the one who is deteriorating in a crack house someplace. There is no difference for all have fallen short of the approval of God. 
There's no difference between the man who's got an impressive stock portfolio and the individual that just got out of the county lockup last night. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The gospel clarifies this. That we are bankrupt and famished of the approval of God and only Jesus Christ can restore it. It's urgent for the world, but it's also, secondly, urgent for the church. Did you notice what King Joram did in verse number 31? He himself was guilty of grotesque violations of God's law. In fact, God was allowing this siege upon Samaria because of the wickedness of King Joram. And he took his guilt and he projected it onto the prophet of God. He projected it onto the righteous. I must say to you, if we do not win our world, they will overrun us. They will. And the guilt and the eruption and the uproar in the conscience of the world will be such that they'll have to tap it down. And much of our world, especially if it happens to reside in the centers of power, will come after those who bother the conscience. Is precisely what they'll do. Hey, there's a long history, and I'm not saying anything that Scripture and history would not substantiate. Those who remind, those in the dark of the light, are oftentimes the first to be targeted by it. Now, I'm not an alarmist. I'm quite optimistic in many ways. But you have to understand, with our system and our world as it is, you've got to understand that you do not need a large number of folks to cause difficulty. You just have to have a few who are positioned in the right place. You not only count, but you weigh their authority and their opportunity. And I'm going to make a statement here that I have uh, considered long and hard But already we are beginning to see a trajectory in this direction. Because of the current moral issues that we are dealing with, if we fail to win our world to Jesus Christ, which will be accompanied by a life transformation and a mind transformation, by the time I believe my grandchildren start having children, Bible teaching will be considered child abuse and the state will have an interest in removing children from those homes and placing them in foster families of gay couples. I can see that happening. In fact, there are some who have spoken that word already. They're not large in number. But you have to understand. You've got to understand. When the conscious is is in an uproar, you go after those who stir the conscience. I do believe religious liberty is at stake, and that's why we've got to evangelize. Now, I want to discourage you. Do not become angry. Do not get angry. Guard your heart from that. Be broken. Be urgent. Be gentle. Be wise. Be prayerful. Be just like Jesus Christ. Jesus lived in a similar situation of what he did. But what will change the nation is not another political movement. We've got to be good Christian citizens. I'm thoroughly convinced of that. The only hope we have is of introducing men and women to Jesus Christ. He and he alone can change the heart and change the mind and secure our liberty. Well, it's good for, it's urgent for the world. It's urgent for the church. It's urgent for the Christian as well. Chapter 7, verse number 9. It says here, Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This is a day of good news, and we remain silent. 
if we remain silent, some other punishment will come upon us. Now, Scripture does make promises to those who share the gospel and invite others to the Lord. There is intense, however, intense invective against those who, are, who do not. Uh, several things. Whenever we share the gospel, we are called wise. Proverbs 11.30, he who wins souls is wise. That means it's foolish not to do it. And then, not only that, but when we share the gospel, we please God. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. So, we please God if we share the gospel. We displease Him if we don't. Then, we win a crown if we do. Second Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Paul called the Thessalonians that he won to himself his joy and crown. We lose this reward if we don't. And then we reunite with those we win to the Lord. We will always be with the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 4.18. But we split and divide from them eternally if we don't, if we do not pursue that. One poet wrote these following words, and I want you to read them out loud with me, if you will. It says, When I get to the beautiful city and the saints all around me appear, I hope someone comes up to me and says, You're the one who invited me here. Imagine the prospect of living your life to give the gospel of Christ to others. And because you've shared and invited others to the Lord, you meet someone there who is there because of your personal invitation to know Christ as Savior. So let me, let me clarify something here real quickly, though. If we get this wrong, and we do not master evangelism, you and I, any of us who know the Lord, do not pay the price. We may lose some reward, but salvation is not in question. Aren't you glad our salvation and security in salvation is not based upon our performance in evangelism? I don't know anyone who would make it. Even Billy Graham has admitted to some failures. Aren't you glad it is based solely on the work of Jesus Christ, His death and His resurrection? And so if you know Christ as Savior... Your salvation is secure, not because of your own work and virtue, but because of His work and His future, uh, His virtue. So if we mess this thing up, if we do not get evangelism right, you and I do not pay an eternal price, but the unbeliever does. They pay the price. And so it is indeed the urgent thing to do. But there's a second reason we share the good news. Sharing the good news is not only the urgent thing to do, it is also the ordinary thing to do. Let me ask those of you who are married. Did you keep it to yourself for long? I don't know about you, but I shared it with everyone as quickly as I could. I was surprised she said yes. But you didn't keep that to yourself for very long. Well, what about the birth of a child? Didn't you announce that? Now, I remember when Michelle and I were, well, when we were engaged, she started the next day singing uh, something by Donna Fargo that she was the happiest girl in the whole USA, and she sings it every day. Well, I thought that would get more of a reaction than what it did. Y'all weren't supposed to take that seriously. But this kind of good news is hard to keep to yourself. It's very ordinary to share good news. Let me ask you something. A family that's had the birth of a child or a family or, or a couple that's been engaged, if they keep it to themselves, what would you say about that? That's not ordinary, is it? Good news is something that we typically and usually share with others, is what we do. It's just the nature of good news to share it. 
That's what these lepers learned, and this is what they knew. In verse number 8, here's their good news. In chapter 7, verse 8, it says here, And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent and ate and drank and carried from it silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried some from there also and went and hid it. In other words, they had a whole camp full of supplies and provision on which to supply themselves and take care of their needs. This is indeed good news. Active, effective witnesses view the gospel of Jesus Christ as good news. The announcement that indeed we have violated the law of God, and that is good news to many people. I I know some people call that bad news, and in a real sense it is, but it's true news. And finally, people get to understand why their lives are as they are when they learn they have become traitors against God, against the King Himself. That comes as a relief to many people. And then the king has paid the price for our sins through his son. He's risen him from the dead because of his approval of him. And anyone who repents and believes can feast at his table. And so the judge becomes a father. The, the savior and the advocate becomes an elder brother. And he invites those who repent and believe the gospel to be part of his family. The judge acquits them at the bar of justice and carries them home to be his own and adopts them as his own. That is good news. In other words, we've got to see the gospel of Jesus Christ as good news. So it's not normal to keep the gospel to oneself. The ordinary Christian thing is not to be silent. I know sometimes we're surprised by a Christian witness who would share the gospel. In other words... It's not the typical thing that happens. Many Christians apparently haven't even considered it. Sharing the good news of Christ and inviting people to the Lord. I look forward to the day when we are no longer surprised that Christians share the gospel. I look forward to the day when we're surprised when they don't. It's the ordinary thing to do. And that is what these do here in this text. Well, sharing the good news is the urgent thing. It's the ordinary thing. And then it is the right thing to do. They were real clear in verse number nine. They said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. It's interesting, this word tell here in verse number nine. This is Originally written, of course, in the Hebrew text. But in AD, or excuse me, 250 BC, translators translated this into the Greek text, into the Greek language, excuse me. It became the Septuagint and it became the Bible of the early church. Most of the early church used the Greek translation of the Old Testament for their purposes. And the word that is used here, tell, in verse number nine, is the, is the comes from the Greek verb, euangelizo, from which we get our word evangelism. It is sharing good news. It is the right thing to do. And they had a clear vision of this. It is right to share the gospel of Christ. Now I can hear someone say, well, I I don't want to impose on others. I I don't want to turn them off. I, I must say to you, when I run into someone like that, I'm usually talking to someone who's not sharing the gospel. Very few people that you and I talk to about Jesus and His love are going to feel like we're imposing. The Holy Spirit does a work. He turns the heart to the gospel of Christ. And quite frankly, almost all of the conversations I have had for more than 30 years with those outside of Christ 
about the gospel of Christ have gone well and have gone positive. I can count on two hands the number of negative, hostile conversations I've had. And the truth is, they were angry before I ever showed up. The vast majority, the vast majority are touched and moved by creation, conscience, and the Holy Spirit in such a way that they are wildly open to hearing the gospel of Christ. Now, you can't have the personality of an atomic bomb and, you know, make a positive difference with them. If you're ugly and rude, well, that's what you're going to get back. But if you will practice the golden rule when sharing the gospel, most of the time you're going to have a positive and friendly conversation with someone about Jesus and his love. The Holy Spirit goes before you. In fact, I would say to you, it's not the witness that is imposing on others. It's not the witness that is opposing the interest of humans, uh, other humans when it comes to sharing the gospel. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2, 15 and 16, they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. The opposition does not come, the opposition to humankind does not come from the Christian witness, it comes from the one who will not witness. In other words, there's not a positive word in the entire Bible about the spiritual status of those who are silent about the gospel of Christ. And so, beloved, you've got to understand, silence when it comes to the gospel is not normal. It's not the standard in Christian life. It's an aberration. It's a perversion. It is a, it is a distortion and deterioration of the Christian faith. It is not right to be silent. And we've got to take our stand there. In fact, Manly Beasley said, if you get right with God, you'll have to backslide to keep from winning people to Jesus. And I think he's right. So before God, the matter of sharing the good news is not a matter of preference, is not a matter of giftedness, is not a matter of calling, but a matter of righteousness with God. The African nation of Malawi, before 2007, was struggling powerfully to feed its own people. Its economic system, its government was in constant crisis, usually at the top per capita of those who needed UN food relief. But in 2007, the president led farmers in Malawi to do something that spiritually, I think, could do us a lot of good as well. And that is, he encouraged them to simply begin to use fertilizer on their crops. And starting in 2007, they did. And so now, per capita, they are at the top of the nations exporting uh, grain to the southern countries of the continent of Africa. In fact, they send tons to Zimbabwe every year that struggles with this. And they fill up the supply houses and warehouses of the UN simply because they use fertilizer. I want to say to you, our walk with God is exposed by our sharing of the gospel. If we do not share the gospel, we are weak and we're probably weaker than we ever imagined. If we do, there's a good chance, a good reason to believe that we're walking with God in the power of the Holy Spirit. May I suggest to you that you nourish that walk with God so that you can become as abundant in this area of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ as Malawi is in sending wheat to other nations. Jay Strack is an evangelist, a Baptist evangelist, and he makes trips to the Holy Land often. Through the years, he's used the same guide, a young Arab man. And every time he's with the young Arab man, he shares the gospel with him. And the young man said, why are you so persistent with me? 
He said, well, because God loves you. And it would be wrong for me not to share with you. He wants you. His son was crucified for your sins. That's why. And the Arab young man replied to him one time, oh, you are avoiding the sin of the desert. And Jay Streck said, the sin of the desert, what do you mean by that? Well, the sin of the desert is this. It is knowing where water is and failing to tell others. The sin of the desert. If you know where water is, morally we are obligated to tell others where it is. Otherwise, it's the sin of the desert. I've got good news for you today. Here at Beach Haven, we've not committed the sin of the desert. In fact, I'll go further. We'll not only tell you where water is, we'll tell you where bread is. In fact, I, I'm merely, as D.T. Nile said, I'm merely just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And I'm not superior, not inferior, but I've been hungry, and I've been thirsty. And there was a day when my soul was famished, and I had nowhere else to turn. And in loving kindness, Jesus came my guilty soul to reclaim. And I hit my knees beside my bed. And I turned my heart and life to Jesus Christ in faith. And He came in and He changed me. And I want you to have the same thing. I know where the food is. I know where the water is. It's in living water. It's in the bread that's come down from heaven. And He pleads with you and calls you today to repudiate all of your famished uh, nature. And and turn away from that which is starving. And and, and to uh, stop spending your life and spending your heart and resources on that which is not food and that which is not bread. And instead, come to Him and His Son who satisfied every soul that's come in humility to Him. Is what He does. He calls you to come to himself. So if anything, we have avoided the sin of the desert and we want to urge you to come. And the way to come is to admit, dear God, I am poor in spirit. In fact, I'm famished. My soul before you is experiencing a famine of your approval. I'm not approved by you. I'm not accepted by you as I am. I've got to repent and turn to Jesus Christ. I am poor in spirit. And Jesus promised those who are poor in spirit will inherit the earth. My soul, you inherit the earth. You've got enough for all eternity, do you not? And then, when you do, He will apply relief to your soul. He will fill you with God's approval when you trust His cross in His resurrection. If you will cast yourself upon His mercy and plead with Him to fill you. He promises in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Isaiah 55, 1 and 6 and 7 say, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy without money, without price. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and He will have mercy on him and our God for He will abundantly pardon him. God Almighty has prepared a table in the presence of your enemies. The enemy of your sin, the enemy of your condemnation and this shepherd is inviting you to feast on what he has supplied for you and his son. Father, we pray for friends today that they would say yes to Jesus. We pray they would open up their hearts and souls to the truth of the gospel, that they indeed are famished. In fact, not only is there not enough to fill their soul in this world, 
but their bank account before you is busted and overdrawn and they're seriously in debt to you. Help them to have that humility. And I pray they would trust you enough to know you as the one who abundantly provides all the grace, all the forgiveness to fill the soul with the salvation that we need. I pray that you'd give them repentance and faith to turn to Jesus and say yes to him. For others, I pray, Father, that you would help them to get past whatever hinders them from being beggars, telling other beggars where to find bread and supply. We're going to sing a song, and as we do, we're asking our staff to stand here waiting for you. We're going to ask you to step out from where you are and to make your way down one of these aisles and tell them your spiritual needs. Some of you are hungry, you're you're malnourished, you're famished, and you're ready to be filled with Jesus Christ. You come and tell them that. Some of you, God is moving to become part of Beach Haven Baptist Church. We want you to. Some may be called to ministry or missionary service. We want you to come. You may have some other needs. The altar's open. We'll pray with you, whatever you need. But please, the Lord is here. He satisfies the hungry soul. Make sure when we say the amen today that you are filled and filled with Him to His pleasure and to His glory. Would you quickly stand with me? I'm going to finish my prayer, and we're going to ask you to come. Lord, I pray that in this time that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart will be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and redeemer. For the sake of Jesus, we pray. Amen.